The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning, and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 121. It's our Chicago question and answer session, part two. Uh, If you haven't listened to part one yet, that's fine. You can listen to this first, and then go back one episode, listen to part one, uh, or whatever order suits your fancy. Uh, We're dropping new podcasts here every Monday. We've got a pretty sweet interview uh, that we did with some med students up in Chicago, uh, that we'll be releasing part one of next Monday, and then uh, part two will be on their channel. But hey, we'll wait till next Monday to give you the deets on that. Also, if you're just craving some more barbell medicine content, check out my Instagram live uh, every Wednesday, 5:30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Just go over to my Instagram page. It's Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine. Ask your questions, and uh, hey, if it's a good one, you know it might make its way onto YouTube uh, or what have you. Also, speaking of YouTube, we're uploading tons of content on the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. So, you know, check that out if you like the video version of some of these or, uh, you know, some of our other content. That would be great. And then finally, it's Cyber Monday. So head over to the barbellmedicine.com website for deep discounts on all of our products and services. That's 50% off ebooks, 30% off templates, and our low back pain course taught by Mike, Dr. Michael Ray, 20% off pain and rehab consultations, coaching plans, group coaching, one on one consultations, and supplements. It's all on the Barbell Medicine website. So check that out after you listen to this podcast. But let's get into the podcast. This is part two of our Chicago question and answer session. Let's go. It has been touched on that uh, weight lifted at max velocity will provide the best gains. In strength, can this be expanded on? Should lifters track bar speed to manage fatigue and increase performance versus just using RPE? It's an excellent question. Uh, so, trying to lift every weight at the highest velocity possible, even when it's going to move at a low velocity, uh, does have some deeply rooted uh, sort of database that, that we're, we're pulling from. So, effectively, if you lift at the maximal volitional velocity, you're likely to use the most muscle mass and have the greatest amount of temporal signaling. So, the actual signal to the muscles is being sent very, very quickly so you to, for you to produce the ultimate maximum amount of force, which is good if you're trying to lift the heaviest weight possible. You want to get in the habit of being able to recruit all of the motor units at the same time. And, and not only that, but recruit them all very, very quickly over and over and over and over again so you can lift the most weight possible. If you lift at a maximum velocity versus just mailing it in, right, you're just coasting each rep, um, you get better uh, adapted and better uh, able to recruit all of that muscle mass and send that electrical signal to the muscle very, very quickly. Um, should you use a bar velocity tracker to manage fatigue? Interesting experiment. There's some new data that has come out suggesting that individuals um, who have certain uh, drop-offs in velocity data, or velocity speed, uh, oh, I thought that was me. What if it was my phone? I guess I could do it as my seminar. You can do whatever I want. Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's some, <laughs> there's some data basically showing specific cutoff, or specific, specific drop-offs in velocity um, actually correlate to better strength gains versus an even higher uh, drop-off in velocity. So you could use a velocity tracker to sort of alert you when your bar speed has dropped to a certain point and not gone too far. And you, could, you could actually terminate the set, terminate the uh, exercise, and move on to the next one based on velocity loss. That'd be a perfectly reasonable way to train. Um, do you have to have one? No. You got a camera on your phone, likely, so you can use that. You felt it. Did it move quickly? Did it move slowly? And, you know, I think you can get pretty close without actually having a bar speed tracker. Austin and I both have bar speed trackers. Neither of us use them right now, even though we're both aware of this velocity-based data. We just feel like we can kind of... Our training intuition at this point, like over a decade in, is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, we can kind of just feel it. Uh, RPE can get you pretty close, too. But I think that you're taking into account velocity anyway. It's not like RPE is separate from velocity. That's part of your calculus. How many reps did I have left? And then you're going to base that on how fast the thing moved and your previous experiences with how fast reps moved that you were failing on or that you had a lot of reps in the tank. So I think it's all connected. Yeah, the only caveat I would say is that the way the first question is phrased is that weight lifted at max velocity will provide the best gains in strength. As written, that sentence is not true because sure. weight lifted at max velocity, like the absolute, fast, the absolute velocity to be high, you have to lift a very, very light weight. And so if your goal is top-end strength performance, you have to handle heavy weights. I do agree if the interpretation is lifting even your heavy weights at the fastest velocity that you can, meaning trying as hard as you can to move it fast, is going to likely get you better results than not trying very hard, right? So shocker that trying hard in training can get you better results. Have you tried <laughs> trying? I, I ask one of my clients that all the time. He'll send me a video and I'm like, you didn't try on that one. Yeah. Go up and try on the next yeah, one. And he, and, and, it, and he goes better. Um, I agree that you don't, you don't need a velocity tracker. It's just a toy. Um, it can give you some useful information um, to tie into your other assessments. So I wouldn't ditch RPE and go purely to velocity. I would try to use them together if you're going to use them together. That can actually even hone, refine your uh, self-assessment even better. Um, the tools are kind of neat in that they, you can program them basically to get sound off a beep at a given velocity loss threshold. So you can say, if from my first rep bar speed, I hit a point where the, the, the bar is moving 15% slower, 20% slower, whatever, uh, then alert and you can stop the set. That's kind of a neat, uh, a neat thing, I think. The, the one other thing that I noticed when I did more regularly hook up the bar speed tracker to the bar was I could feel myself trying harder. I could feel myself basically wanting the velocity to be as absolutely high as I could possibly get it on every single rep. And I think that was definitely a bit different. Even though I typically like to think that I try in training, I definitely felt that I was trying harder once that thing was on there. Uh, you can even program it to call out your bar speed immediately after each rep. And so, you know, you'd pull something and it'd say like, 0.55 or something like that. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to pull this next one. I want to be 0.56. I want to pull the next rep faster, 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 even though it doesn't usually increment. But that kind of effort I did notice, at least from a feel standpoint, was higher. So There was a software update. You can program your own sounds now. <laughs> so mine's just the Rick Ross. Well, then you just PR. That's yeah. right. <laughs> mine's just Rick Ross. <laughs> and I'm yep. like, oh, that fast or slow? I'm unsure. <laughs> okay. Is it morally acceptable... Is it moral or acceptable to augment the placebo component of a treatment that is already the accepted medical treatment of a painful experience? I mean, 
I guess I, it depends on what the risks are of a, a, the augmentation technique you're trying to use. <laughs> like, Give some examples. I, that's what I'm saying. Like I'm trying to think of like what they're what they're suggesting. Okay, I routinely do this. Yeah. When I'm so if I'm offering somebody a treatment for a subjective symptom, again, be it pain, nausea, whatever the case is, um, even if uh, what I'm giving them is already kind of the accepted evidence-based treatment or the best thing we have to offer, when I'm discussing it with them, I will often kind of hype it up a little bit, say it's, you know, a lot of patients have great, you know, uh, experienced significant improvement in their symptoms when, when dealing with this, which is not untrue. Um, and, I, and I do tend to hype those up. There are some good papers on this. Uh, there's a lot of ethical discussion in the research literature around use of placebo. And I think there's even one paper that's specifically titled like maximize placebo, minimize nocebo, like in clinical practice, even when you're doing things by the book, there's a role for that because it can improve, you know, patients' experiences, uh, maximize the benefits and minimize the harms. So I'm down with it. When would, when would you say like, ah, you've gone too far? I need some examples. You're going to inject at somebody's knee with saline? No, I don't inject knees anyway. Well, right. So. But I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> that would be a placebo. It is medically accepted in some circles. Yeah. It's not your circle. No. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, well, everything's got a placebo effect component to it and maximizing that without increasing risk unnecessarily. So for example, one, uh, you could, if you were telling somebody about a new medication you were starting them on, not if you're not a clinician, obviously you're not starting people on medications, but theoretically, right? Um, if you just said, these are all the positive, positive things that are likely to happen, many patients have this, and you didn't list any of the side, potential side effects, that would probably not be ethically acceptable. Um, that being said, when you're describing the side effects, the negative uh, potential side effects, you don't have to go into great detail about you know all these random case reports, and you don't have to like use scary language. So like if you were starting somebody on a statin, you wouldn't say yeah, and, and there's like you know a, a quarter of one percent, one percent chance of rhabdo or that your muscles will dissolve. <laughs> <laughs> don't Google this. Yeah, yeah, okay. What are the most quick and effective analogies you've used to explain pain to patients? I will start. Uh, okay. Just don't, just don't just steal the, mine. The first caveat that I would say here is I typically don't go into these encounters with the aim of explaining pain to a patient. The patient knows what pain is, what it feels like, right? They're coming to me telling me this hurts. I don't have to tell them what it means to hurt or what, what hurt is. Rather, I'm there to help them make sense of their experience, to understand what it means, what it doesn't mean, and what they can do about it, if anything. Usually, there are a lot of things that can be done about it. So I think that we need to be cautious about, because, you know, and, and most of us, when we learn a lot of this kind of newfangled pain stuff that's actually been around for a few decades at this point, um, you get excited to just kind of like, you know, burst into the exam room and start, you know, telling your patient how it is. It's like the Kool-Aid and, guy. Right, oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> here's what you're feeling in your back. And they're like, what? Yeah, right. So I think first and foremost, in all of these uh, encounters where I'm having these kind of conversations with patients, I'm generally asking them to tell me about what they're experiencing. And then I just shut up and let them tell me. And I even do the same thing outside of musculoskeletal pain related issues when I'm in the hospital, in the ER, Uh, somebody might be coming in with something else that I actually need to admit them to the hospital for. And I'm not there to necessarily kick in the door and tell them what's going on. I said, tell me what's going on. And I just zip it and let them talk. Now, at some point, I need to start getting more involved in the conversation, but anytime I find myself talking more than the patient is, that's a red flag to me that something's not right. And I tell my residents and students that, particularly when they get to talking too much. I say, you should be probably talking a little bit less. I want to hear more from them. 
Um, with that said, once it gets to the point where um, I've assessed the patient's understanding of what this pain means, then that may be a place where I can kind of confront some of those beliefs and aim to redirect those a little bit. So if their belief is, yeah, I have this pain in my back when I bend over and I think it, uh, you know, every time I have that pain, it means that my joints are grinding away against one another and that's why I'm having pain. Well, that's something that I probably need to correct, right? I need to nudge that in a different direction. Otherwise, when I ask them to go and bend over and exercise, right, to pick up a load off the floor or something like that, then that's a situation where that interpretation, where they're like, oh, no, my joints are grinding together. I can't do this. This is unsafe, right? Can't tie my shoes, can't put my sock on. So I have to alter that meaning, that understanding that they have. So a simple kind of metaphor that you'll hear used a lot in this world is just kind of the idea of pain as an alarm system. That's one where it's very easy to, to discuss it. Um, patients can understand that fairly readily. You can also build in the concepts of kind of sensitivity to that, uh, into that discussion um, and, and kind of help to alter their, their understanding of what, what pain means to guide them on the right path. But I just caution people not to um, jump to that sort of uh, aggressive over-explaining too soon to early before you've listened to the person and gotten a sense of where they're coming from. Yeah, I think if people are trying to have for, like deeper discussions with patients or even other people about pain, um, the analogy that I like that I think makes the most sense to me as far as the complexity of like what's actually going on is that pain is an experience similar to hunger, like hunger is an experience and that there are many different inputs into why you become hungry and why you have pain. So for example, you don't, aren't always just hungry when your body is low on energy or needs calories, right? So it's not just biological, but there are social inputs, right? If you see people around you eating, you smell that tasty donut, you see food, for example, you might become hungry. Um, there are psychological things that go on that affect your uh, uh, dietary intake or your want to eat um, or not. And that's similar to uh, with pain, that there are all these sort of in different inputs that get integrated into that experience. And so when people start to understand the complexity, then you can further kind of explain this if people need it. But you don't need to, you know, have this in-depth discussion with somebody about pain um, until you've kind of figured out what their story is and like why they're, why they're there, why they're talking to And especially if they're not the ready place. to hear it. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so not everybody's ready to hear it. Right. So, so if your friend says, yeah, man, I'm threw my back out this morning. It's been, I'm not going to make it to the gym or whatever. You're like, yeah, so let me tell you about pain. <laughs> Pain's like hunger, you see? And uh, sometimes you just got to let the big dog eat. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I went to a seminar. That's, that's what I took home. That's not what we said. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, in general, I kind of wait for somebody to ask me to weigh in on these things before I actually weigh in on them. Yeah, saves, saves everyone a bunch of time. Okay, can you reconcile for me the idea that physical inactivity makes you anabolically resistant with the repeated bout effect? I would think the opposite would be true. Uh, so physical inactivity makes you anabolically resistant by failing to provide mechanical and uh, biochemical stimulus to the muscle to grow. So since you're physically inactive, you're not getting any mechanical sort of tension being, or a lot of mechanical tension and force being uh, both required from and then applied to the muscle itself. It's one of the stimuli uh, for driving muscular growth, right? Not only that the muscle has to create a lot of tension, uh, but that it's exposed to mechanical loading. So you're not doing that because you're physically inactive. Um, And then the hormonal milieu that's created by this working muscle, specifically like mechanical growth factor, 
um, which is only, only occurs via mechanically loading the muscle. Um, that doesn't happen because, again, physically inactive. Um, those things make it harder to respond to anabolic stimuli like dietary protein um, and, or even initial bouts of physical activity until you start to get that becomes uh, more and more of a habit. So, for example, if you were on bed rest in a hospital, you become anabolically resistant very, very quickly because you're literally in a bed. That's a problem. This is a very different thing. You know, the other part of this question is asking about the repeated bout effect, which is completely separate, actually, from the idea of anabolic resistance. The repeated bout effect describes this phenomenon whereby upon repeated exposure to an activity or an exercise or a movement, you generate or elicit less muscle damage as a result. So this is more a better explanation for why you get less sore when you do things more frequently over time. That's separate from whether or not you respond to it from an anabolic standpoint. You could even make the argument that the more the repeated bout effect happens, you're getting less muscle damage. You have to spend less resources rebuilding, repairing the muscle, and more energy on actually building the muscle, which is yeah, why we get muscle. better hypertrophy actually after that initial phase uh, where everybody's super sore in, uh, in uh, hypertrophy studies and things like that. So it's a separate phenomenon. Yeah, I think people are saying, well, because I'm not breaking down as much muscle tissue, that means I'm going to get less benefit, which means I'm slightly anabolically resistant. And actually the opposite is true. Because you're actually breaking down less muscle tissue, less muscular damage, you get to expend less resources, like you said, and get more gains. You want the repeated bout effect. You want it. Okay, what other factors besides issues with LDL receptors raise levels of LDL? Well, lots of different things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there are a few common issues with LDL receptors that we discussed that can raise levels of LDL in the blood. One was insulin resistance, the most common, the one that we need to attack um, as hard as we can. Others would be low thyroid function can impair uh, LDL receptor function, leading to elevated levels uh, of LDL and associated lipoproteins in the blood. And then LDL receptor genes themselves can uh, influence their level of uh, uh, function. So there's a bunch of genetic inputs um, here. There are completely separate genetic issues that can also raise levels of LDL with respect to uh, not the LDL receptors clear it from the blood. There are other genetic issues that can result in overproduction of these things. So ApoB kind of hyper hyperproduction uh, uh, disorders that can lead to elevated uh, levels of LDL. Um, in the blood, there are some, again, nutritional aspects that can be involved here as well. Uh, this stuff all gets really complicated really fast. Um, yeah. So, yeah, to the extent that you want to learn about this, there's a lot of lipidology resources out there. But, yeah, it's Well, it's all just made up. doesn't matter. <laughs> LDL doesn't matter. So. Yeah, we learned that in the comments of one of our prior videos. That's right. Yeah, so just to, you know, piss that person off, also increased levels of dietary saturated fat if they're above uh, 10%, and if they get closer to 20%, can substantially increase your levels of LDL. Come at me, bro. <laughs> Better bring receipts, too. Okay. Uh, <laughs> receipts is hood slang for citations. References, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is time under tension ever a consideration in your exercise selection? No. Okay. I'll uh, add a caveat here. Okay. So uh, we're not specifically programming uh, with the idea that time under tension offers a unique like hypertrophy benefit or something like that. Rather, um, the, the time where I could argue this comes into play is when we prescribe tempo work. In particular, we use tempo work frequently in a rehab context. Um, we use that time under tension not with the idea that, again, it's going to get you more jacked or more strong. Rather, we often are using it as a way to keep uh, you know, people who are motivated lifters from putting, putting too much weight on the bar. So when, I tell you, when you tell me that your knee hurts... 
because you're, you know, you're not willing to take enough weight off the bar to uh, rehab this appropriately, then I'm going to say, fine, we're going to do 303 tempo squats for sets of 15. Let me see you squat 455 doing that or something like that, right? Um, so we're more often using the time under tension in this context as a way to limit uh, absolute loading. Uh, and then as symptoms regress, then wait, you know, they, they can improve their performance there. Symptoms might start to regress. I might pull that tempo back from a 303 to a 300, change from a 300 to a one count pause, one count pause to a regular, or some, what might be a typical example of a progression back towards normal speed kind of work. But I'm not doing that with the idea that there's some unique benefit uh, to that. Yeah, the only, I mean, with respect to tempo, my general considerations, uh, first, I guess most closely related to time under tension, occasionally I'll program isometrics in for folks, and when I'm thinking about actually controlling volume there, duration is really the length there. So if I had somebody hold a mid-range isometric pin press, for example, maybe week one would be 15 seconds, week two might be 25 seconds. I just, I'm picking time periods, right? So that's technically time under tension. That's a consideration involving time. <laughs> And there's tension created, so I feel like that works. Uh, in addition, when I'm thinking like either overload work or tempo work, for example, I'm not necessarily focused on the total time spent under tension. I'm rather focused on the specific contraction type adaptations that I'm trying to glean. So for example, for using overload work like with weight releasers, or chains, or something like that, I'm trying to glean maybe eccentrically focused uh, training adaptations, which again, I'm not focused on the time it takes to do the thing, right? How much time you're spending per rep. Um, but I know that the eccentric is going to be slower. Uh, the only other maybe potential consideration I could have here is that usually for my powerlifting athletes, I'll tend to make most of their like top sets somewhere in that one to four rep range. But I, but, and the idea is that once I start getting greater than that, the actual time of the set becomes very, very long. And uh, not only do I know that their conditioning isn't ready for that, but also it becomes way, way less specific to what they want to do. So just the time, again, time, tension, I'm using them in the same sentence, but otherwise I don't. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Is soreness, like delayed onset muscle soreness, an inflammatory response? Not really. It's, it's more of an immune response than anything else, but and there's some inflammatory signals and, and, and signaling molecules that, that uh, are involved in that cascade, but it's not. Yeah, I think the implication of the question, and I may be reading too much into this, because a lot of people use the word inflammation or inflammatory response with a negative connotation, like it's a bad thing, without necessarily realizing that this inflammatory response that's, again, generated by the immune system is normal, it's desirable, it's how we heal, it's how we repair, it's actually intimately involved in how we get more jacked and, and more strong. So uh, to some extent, you actually want a normal uh, inflammatory response to exercise. This inflammatory response is not typically clinically significant. And what I mean by that is we don't see massive changes in people's like inflammatory markers. We don't see them get whole body, red, hot, swollen, and tender as a, as a result of exercise, uh, fortunately. Um, I wouldn't say that delayed onset muscle soreness is an unusually or excessively inflammatory condition. It just is a thing that happens. And if you, you know, most people, there's actually some, some research looking into this where using NSAIDs, for example, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in the context of the late onset muscle soreness doesn't actually seem to do anything, which would argue against a significant inflammatory hypothesis. I'm not aware of anybody treating delayed onset muscle soreness with uh, glucocorticoids like prednisone. I suspect that the uh, costs or the risks of that would outweigh the benefits since those are 
you know, directly catabolic drugs. Um, so yeah, I think there, there may be a small degree of it present that is normal and desirable. Uh, it's not something that I would aim to tamp down or treat or do anything about. I would just continue training uh, um, with a reasonable degree of uh, kind of specificity or similarity that allows you to mount that repeated bout effect so you get less sore and then you can train more. Yeah, I mean... And as far, like I said, as far as inflammatory signaling molecules, yeah, they're involved. involved in sure, but if this is, if you're asking if it's a full-blown inflammatory response that is abnormal and that we have issues dealing with, no, answer is no. Okay, powerlifting is neat and driving my numbers up is fun, but I want to get swole. For power building approaches, how much time would you spend on the compound lifts versus climbing Mount Bicipius during the week? <laughs> That's funny. Tom, did you write that? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I was like, if Tom didn't write this, we got to hire this person because like... There you go. Yeah. Good judge of talent. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I, um, so obviously our power building templates kind of reflects what I think about this in a practical standpoint. I still think if you're interested in powerlifting or that's what kind of... Uh, is, is something you enjoy as part of going to the gym, I would still regularly expose yourself to the squat bench and deadlift. Could you do variations? Sure, if you needed a mini break. But, you know, that that's fine. I, I still think exposing yourself to those things are great. Where the big sort of divergence occurs typically uh, happens in the, the third exercises or second and third exercises for the day and then any sort of accessory lifts after that. So typically on like a power, power lifting type template or program that I'm, I'm, I'm building for somebody, I still think those third type exercises are relatively specific. So they're going to be some sort of squat bench or deadlift variation. They're not going to be in general for repetition, high, high uh, repetition ranges, like greater than eight, because unless it's a really off season block, GPP block, something like that. So they're going to be usually for sets of eight or less. Whereas for power building, I would probably pick either more isolation type exercises or have a wider latitude of variations I'm going to pick and do for, do them for higher repetitions so I can do them at a lighter weight and then I'll do them for more volume. And then the accessory lifts after that would if it even go further into isolation territory with, again, higher volumes and stuff like that. So the you know it might be squat, then a bench press variation, and then like a dumbbell bench or a dumbbell incline or dumbbell press, and then it might be lateral raises uh, after that. Something like, and that would be more power building type approach. Where if it was power lifting, it would be squat, bench, three count pause, bench, and then maybe you get like some JM presses after that. Now that being said, most of our power lifting templates and our way to program for power lifting or just strength improvement in general does have a substantial amount of volume because we know that increasing lean body mass is super super important, right? It's just different. It's different because we try to keep it more specific to the squat, the bench press, and the deadlift, whereas for power building, we're okay being nonspecific and saying, you want to work directly on your traps? Sure, we can do some shrugs. I don't think that shrugs really have a big you know, impact on your powerlifting performance. You want to do biceps curls? That's great. Do some biceps curls. Let's do a lot of biceps curls. Let's do some calf raises, whatever. I don't think either of those things really have an impact on your, uh, on your powerlifting performance. What, what else? I clearly don't do power building. So. <laughs> Excellent. Just don't care. That's it. <laughs> Excellent way to end. Yeah. Awesome work. Cool. Thank you guys for coming out. All right, that's a wrap on our Chicago Q&A part two. Again, part one is the episode before this, so you can go back and check that out if you haven't listened to it yet. And again, it is Cyber Monday all day till midnight 
uh, Pacific Standard Time. We're running deep discounts on all of our products and services. Head over to the barbellmedicine.com website, check out our stuff, and we appreciate you guys tuning in. But before you go, leave us a five-star rating and a review. really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep delivering you these high-quality podcasts every Monday right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.